the exciting thing is that I think hopefully there'll be an appetite to, to listen to what's possible um, because the way it feels like there's a hopefully there'll be an awakening and we need to kind of almost not just go back to how we always did things that there's an opportunity to do things in a new way. Hello and welcome to the Doyen Interviews with me Bridget Nathan. The Doyen Interviews is an Australian design podcast that celebrates inspiring women from the arts, architecture and design scene. Fully illustrated by Grace Yeo and accompanied by music from Anon, I'm glad you've tuned in. This mini-season, Lockdown Awakening, is kindly sponsored by Coolon LED Lighting. Coolon is 100% Australian-owned and operated. In fact, their lights are made here in my city, Melbourne. It's great to have Coolon on board. You'll hear a bit more about them these next few episodes. The Doyen Interviews acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. Okay, so hello and welcome to our first guest, Claire Cousins. Claire is an infamous Melbourne architect. And as many of us are currently living, working and socialising from our homes, I thought it would be interesting to discuss her thoughts on home, what it means to her and how it's changing. So Claire, welcome. Um, thanks for joining us today. Uh, how are you going at the moment? Thanks for having me, Bridget. Nice to be here. Yeah, I think I, don't, I think we're in maybe roughly week six of um, working from home arrangement. We were kind of looking to move fairly early I think we all moved um, all of our office moved home a week or so before the compulsory shutdown um, but no I think it's going really well it's, there's certainly some challenges particularly when it comes to design it's never as easy to do that remotely and not sitting physically with people but um, the office we're really lucky that we've got enough you know um, certainly got enough work to keep us busy I think there's um, I'm, I'm certainly enjoying not having to do the commute each morning and it's a different kind of pace really. So, um, yeah, uh, making the most of it um, while it's not ideal for everybody but there's some upsides. Yeah, there definitely are a lot of upsides um, not having to do the commute to work. How have you been communicating with each other? You mentioned the design process. How has that been? I think, yeah, everyone, pretty much everyone took, most people took computers home just because they don't, because um, they weren't sort of set up to, um, uh, from home and they might have had an iPad or a, a laptop but um, and quite a few people took their desk chair so it was really important that people felt really comfortable um, which was good so that they could feel, you know, I think what's challenging is, you know, when you do live in a small apartment, how do you find that space to work all day and also share a space with other people that you might live with and have enough, you know, um, a zone and then also when you finish work for the day that you don't feel like you're constantly surrounded by by all your work things um but no it's been working really well we do we kind of do a morning 9am zoom I think it's good certainly good discipline for me to make sure I'm at the computer after I've you know, made sure my my kids are set up for working from home so um, or schooling from home so um, I'm often a couple of minutes late just making sure that that's all running but it's a really nice I think in a way it's a bit more of a mental health check it's a nice way for us to all um, touch base with each other for 10-15 minutes in the morning not that generally much has happened overnight because everyone's <laughs> lives are pretty quiet at the moment um, yeah. but it's a nice quick way of working through you know who's working on what who needs help with this and um, I think on a Monday lunchtime we have a kind of quiz um, that someone hosts you know so there's a bit something that we do in the office that the guys often do anyway with um, the newspaper at, at lunchtime so we've tried oh, to cool. keep that tradition up and then it, 
And then on a Friday at five, we have our kind of knockoff drinks, which normally goes for half an hour to an hour where people are just, you know, still, we're still sitting in front of our Zoom, <laughs> in front of our cameras. Um, but no, I think it's working well. I mean, we, we did actually yeah. end up introducing a couple of, we, we joined, we, we created a Slack, an office Slack channel, which is good, um, which has been good to share um, more informal conversations, I think, within the office and share photos. And then we also um, implemented Trello more as a kind of um, task-based platform to allocate tasks between people. So it's been quite interesting to see how when you can't take your physical proximity for granted, you know, how you need to adapt. But it it was, um, I think we adapted really quickly. I think also um, I suppose there's the certain challenges where we use um, Archicad in our office and, and those licences sit on the server in the office. And so just getting, you know, the logistics of making sure team, teamwork when people are, you know, multiple people are working on on um, 3D models and those kind of things working. So, you know, we've had our, you know, little hiccups, but it's, it's all working pretty well, I think. So, yeah. Oh, Lots of photographing, good. yellow trace and, and emailing photographs and sketches and, <laughs> and then the odd bit of FaceTime when you're trying to point to a drawing on your phone and FaceTiming. But I, I think there's certainly you lose a bit of efficiency, you know, the efficiencies. It's, it's not, it's kind of can be a little frustrating sometimes when you're trying to work through a design with people. Yeah. But um, but anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a point in our lives and I think we've just got to go with it and I think there's a lot of learnings that we can take from the experience and I think actually – I think we've also got to, I suppose I, I am always trying to be, you know, optimistic and look at the positives of these situations and the way that it perhaps has kind of slowed us down. I think life's been, life particularly I've felt for me over the last couple of years has been really hectic and full on and I think I've really kind of relished the quiet and the slowness that's come with the um, the, the time that we're in and um, and even though yeah. I'm kind of working you know eight nine ten hour days sitting in the one spot which is not obviously good physically but um, I'm kind of enjoying that um, the mornings you know I'm going for a walk in the morning with my kids and then you know then there's no commute home in the afternoon and then we're cooking a lot more and um, I think that kind of intensive family time has also been really um, precious so yeah I've noticed um, around the suburbs as well there are a lot of families doing stuff together and you see people going to the park and it's yeah there's a lot of really even though it's it's a really tough time at the moment um as we sort of spoke mm. about earlier before we started the recording um yeah there's it's great to hear that you've got that positive attitude because I think a lot of people probably feel quite similar um in conversations I've been having with friends about how nice it is to just be in the one place and to cut out a lot of the things mm. that we have in our life that we feel that we need. <laughs> um, but then now that mm. we're in this situation, you're sort of thinking, oh, do we, did we really need that? Yeah, it's sort of like yeah. a, a bit of an introspective period. Um, so mm. for this podcast, it would be great to talk about your career. Um, and, yeah, Claire Cousins Architects do, um, you know, a wealth of really amazing projects so cultural um, you've done some furniture design multi-residential and commercial um, but it would be great to focus on housing as a key topic because yeah we're, we're spending as we've mentioned a lot of time in our houses so looking at Claire Cousins looking at the past before you even establish your practice how did you get into architecture what motivated you you've sort of touched on design and you're known a lot for design um, yeah, what, what were sort of like the beginnings to your story? I, um, I'm always really interested to hear where people decided, when they decided to become architects. It was never a, you know, um, it was a last minute 
it was a, I really fell into it. It was a complete sort of fluke in some respects. And oh, right. I, um, high school for me was um, well when I finished VCE, it was all double math and double science. I really enjoyed um, the analytical and the logic and the practical and the um, I suppose the patterns that happen with maths and science. But I always had a kind of creative interests on the side, which might have been more drama and music and um, those kind of things. I didn't really beyond when everyone does art at school, when it went into specialising and you're choosing your subjects as you got older through high school, I never um, continued with art. And I think I was really heading towards engineering because I enjoyed physics and chemistry and whatnot and thought, oh, that would be really interesting. And then I think at the, at the last minute I was waiting in the um, careers counsellor's office waiting room and they like yeah. sit down look at the computer choose a you know have a look at some careers and the top of the list was a for architecture and I was like oh architecture that would be quite interesting so it was a complete sort of fluke and I I, I don't remember but I would imagine I got home I think the, the careers council was like yep no problem you can that would be fine you've got maths you've got physics yes you could do that it was at a time too when um, you didn't need a folio to get into RMIT. I don't know if you do any anymore. And I and I think I probably would have gone home and mentioned it to mum and dad. And I remember my dad being very enthusiastic about it and thinking it was a great profession. Um, so I just um, yeah, I got into RMIT. I think that was a bit of a fluke too. Um, I got in on a, a second round offer, um, and it was a really great um, university course for me at the time. I think because I was such a in a naturally pragmatic kind of person, I found that the teachings at, at RMIT were very conceptually driven, which really t- had to tease out, often painfully, um, more conceptual thinking for me. And I think also that I really enjoyed the, the amount of um, contact and tutorials by practitioners I felt was really um, exciting to have people who were working in the in the field coming in and teaching at night and so it really yeah. it, it was it, the structure worked really well because often studio was at night time and that, that meant we could work in uh, architecture practices during the day so I while I started I think yeah first year for me was 1994 which was actually still you know coming through a very flat time in the market I ended up getting a job in first year uh, in a small residential practice uh, but um, it was, yeah, so it was really good having that kind of, you know, bit of architecture, hospitality at night time, studying. Um, and like many of us at that time, I took sort of seven years to study architecture and, you know, had time working part-time. And then I did a semester in Berlin, which was interesting, and then back to back around Europe. And I think that, you know, where you just want that complete immersion in, you know, that experience of living overseas and different, you know, European architecture is so different to what we yeah. experience here in Australia. So, yeah, and the rest oh. Wow, that sounds amazing. It sounds like you probably, yeah, by the time you finished your degree, you'd gotten some really great experience um, in practice and also seen a bit of the world. Um, Mm. Did you always think that you would start your own firm or did you, was it, how did that happen? Was it an opportunity that happened or is it something that you sort of geared yourself towards? Yeah, again, I don't really ever remember. I think I never thought that I would do anything other than work for myself eventually. Um, I think, I don't know, I don't know why that was really, but um, maybe it was just the, the need to, to, for that independence and also probably being a firstborn, probably to be yeah um, the one that could make decisions and not have to, you know, you know, the, to, um, yeah, to be making my own decisions, I suppose. But I really, that the experience that I had working for, I worked for three different practices and all very different um, and all were small and medium practices, which I really enjoyed. 
um, because of that, um, I suppose, intimacy of practice, but also the breadth that you gain from working in a small practice that you see a lot. You know, you're not kind of just focusing on sitting in a documentation team. And there's pros and cons in the, all the kinds of different practices yeah. that of what you can learn. But I was particularly attracted to those um, smaller practices. And so after graduation, I went and worked for Woodmarsh for uh, three or four years, which was, you know, a real baptism of fire and working on some really interesting projects, mostly residential. And then I think I think I was 28 when I just decided that I wanted to sort of um, go out on my own. And I hadn't, I didn't have any, I didn't have a, um, there wasn't a kind of renovation offer, you know, or project that I could kickstart the practice with I just decided I'd had I'd had various people I hadn't looked for work at all but you know you, you get people along the way saying oh you're an architect you know uh, or a graduate you know can you draw me a kitchen or can you um you know draw me out my bathroom or help me with some finishes and I was always sort of someone that was not very good at saying no and was always keen to you know try something out and test it so I had done dozens and dozens of kitchens and bathrooms and so in a way then when I started the practice I had um lots of people you know there was it was all lots of tiny little jobs but all word of mouth and you know eventually within I think the first year I finally got one or two renovations and it went from there but I was reflecting though on it recently how vastly different it was starting a practice in 2005 versus now 15 years later and just the fact that um I didn't really have any friends I've got you know very lucky to have lots of you know great friends and colleagues in the profession now which is obviously what happens the older you get and the longer you've been working in the industry but a lot of my friends worked for practices at the time and so it was quite a lonely I mean not lonely as a bad thing but it was it was there was no one to talk to about what I was doing and I'm sure for years and years the first at least two or three years I had no idea how to charge you know for a project (laughs) because it was something that the practices that I'd worked at that was never that was never transparent, you know, or I was never part of that process. So I had yeah. no idea what to do um, or how to charge and um, or even just you know, when things went wrong or, or not even went wrong, but it's more when, when you face a challenge and, and how to, you know, deal with that. But then even, you know, we were dealing with fax machines and I didn't have a website and, you know, it was like how do you win work? You know, you've actually got to try and build something which will take a few years, then photograph it, then try and get it into a magazine. Wow. And that took another year, you know. And so I think even after our first renovation, it probably took three years for it, at least for it to even if we were lucky enough to have it, uh, our first house published in Vogue and in um, Houses magazine, wow. which was great. And then you sort of go, okay, well, let's now wait for the phone to ring, you know. So it's a really funny, funny process because it was so such a long lag and um, whereas now there's this um, – it's fascinating that the immediacy or even even while you're working or designing on projects, the way that um, and I love watching, you know, and seeing what friends and colleagues are doing in the industry in Australia or overseas, you know, you, you get to be part of the process of architecture much more. And I think the public often really enjoy that about people's, um, say, Instagram accounts, you know, that, that, that you don't have to wait that long to be able to talk about what you're doing or, what your services or offering is and so I think it's it's really quite fascinating um that how vastly that's changed in in the last 15 years. Do you think that that's impacted the way that you developed relationships with clients? Yeah it absolutely was very much about um building strong relationships but for me that's never changed and I think um that's one of the things I love most about the the practice or maybe you know architecture that it is a very I find it a very social 
um, personal process or, you know, because it's very, you, you are talking to people and, and it, it takes a lot of listening and the listening and the conversations and really hearing what people are saying, because I think often it's looking for those little hidden gems in what makes someone tick or what's important to somebody or what's something that they don't like. And, but, but building relationships, I think, yeah. um, I remember reflecting on it maybe in the first five years that I've, I remember thinking I could have drawn a kind of family tree of all of our projects because they all came from word of mouth because there was no other way of getting work. You know, architects don't traditionally advertise or so it was literally I could say, okay, that client came through that one and that one recommended me to this person. You know, it was all of that kind of yeah. thing and it was um, and so which I think is really nice. I mean, just because you've worked for someone doesn't mean you're going to be the right fit for their friend at the yeah. same time but in the early years, that, that was, I suppose, how it kind of worked. And maybe that's much more apparent in domestic architecture and housing because it is a, is a relationship thing. And a bit like when, I don't know, someone's had a good electrician, they want to um, say, you know, recommend them to their friend because they had a good experience. And, you know, I suppose the same went for us. But yeah. but we've, but what's been really nice is that we've got clients that we've done for and we were just looking at another potential site for them that if that it didn't come, come off, they didn't decide to buy the house. But it would have been our fifth project working with these clients over – 10 years and um and and they you know we love working with them they really enjoy the process um and you sort of often think oh well you're not really often going to do many more than one houses you know one house for people because generally it's it's a big investment and a big process but some people really enjoy it and I think that that we have a lot of our projects have um we've had a lot of you know we, we do a lot of repeat work for people and I think that is obviously about building relationships and really enjoying that process together yeah I find that so interesting. Um, before I started working in architecture, I did a lot of work in set design and it was a very right. similar sort of thing um, but totally different scale and totally different stakes, I think, because I think when you're designing a house for someone, they're really um, putting a lot of trust in you and a set design is just a completely different, um, yeah, it's a different thing. But what's similar is that, um, yeah, you don't – apply to jobs you just get a job like one leads to another leads to another leads to another mm. um so I find that yeah that really interesting um because well, you truly sort of freelance often aren't you as a as a set designer and so it is about relationships with directors or producers or whoever is um, yeah. I imagine that's how it would work you know that it is about relate very much about relationships because each project they need to assemble a new I suppose crew of people to work on productions yeah yeah, and it's sort of like um, I'm sure this has come up in your work. It's sort of like you might um, meet someone and you'll have a discussion about something and then you sort of both remember that. And so then later down the track you might reference what happened there but not necessarily in a really um, yeah structured way. It just sort of comes out and it's really nice mm. that you've got that background relationship because, yeah, you're sort of building mm. up this like – bucket of ideas that might like come mm. out um but yeah I mean your projects are um amazing how have you seen the actual types of residential projects that you've worked on how have they changed over the years um do you have you noticed some shifts in different needs that people have or have you noticed that a lot of things come up all the time that sort of seem to be 
um, you know, universal, universal needs in a house, regardless of whether we're in COVID-19 or the GFC or, um, mm. you know, you're, you're working on a small apartment and that's just the first time you've worked with that client. Yeah, what things are the same and what things um, have you noticed that have been changing? Um, I think I think what's interesting is that if we find each project very different from another, while the, the pragmatic list of requirements, you know, two or three bedrooms and living room and a kitchen and all those kind of um, programmatic requirements are often similar. Obviously, it's just different scales of houses depending on the scale of the, you know, the, um, yeah. the occupants and the family. But um, I don't know. I mean, I suppose the, the key difference for us from when we started the practice to when we're working the kind of projects we're on now is that, you know, in the early days it was always renovations. Uh, it took us quite a long time, maybe six, seven, eight, year, nine years before we got to do a new house. Um, right. But I, uh, and, and we probably do more new houses, I'm probably 50-50 now, but, um, but I think, and maybe that was because, I don't know, I, I suppose that's one of the really interesting things about Melbourne is that we, you know, we were doing a lot of houses in inner Melbourne, which typically have a lot of, um, there's a lot of period houses, which obviously need retaining and we really enjoy working with the adaption of period houses. Um, but the, the key change probably has that our projects have got slightly bigger. You know, we used to work on smaller budgets and smaller projects and I suppose as you become more established, people um, have faith in you to, you know, or approach you for bigger projects. And while we like working on small, nimble little projects, you get to a, a a time, um, a point in your practice where it just is no longer financially viable to, you know, right. general, you know, to work on a four hundred thousand dollar renovation as much as we would love to. You just end up having to run too many of them, or there's just there's um not enough time to do that. But um, right. but I but I think between jobs or between you know different projects, because we we always see each of our projects are very much a um a reflection of our clients, and so therefore. Um, we, they're often very different from one another because um, there's, there's a two actually that we did at the same time, uh, happened to design them at the same time. They were built by the same builder, which was kind of a coincidence, and that they were only a, a suburb away from each other. One was in Northcote or West Garth and one was in North Fitzroy, and they couldn't be more different from each other. One's called Gable House, so it's a addition at the back of a, a white gable-fronted um, weatherboard um, on a really interesting uh, double block but really shallow, so quite a square block in a little narrow street in North Fitzroy. Um, yeah. And it's kind of light and bright and um, very much engaged with its garden and uh, the neighbourhood. And then the one in Westgarth, which is called Rail House, is this kind of uh, austere concrete block, black stained timber, very bunker-like, um, pr- um, secure and um, really – uh, very private uh, house because it's abutting the train line. It's right next to um, it's connected to the train line, and it was really this exploration of using, a, you know, uh, building a new house on a very difficult kind of wedge-shaped block of land. The client was very much interested in privacy and sanctuary and um, retreat from the street. And so, I suppose what was really interesting is to sort of see those two projects, which were built at the same time, designed at the same time, but just very different clients and very different briefs. You end up with very different outcome projects. And I suppose that's the other thing that we really enjoy is. Um, is that no two projects are the same and even, um, you know, 15 years later we find every project is an opportunity to really um, test or explore new things and we're always feeling like every day I sort of feel like I learn new things. So there's never that, you never know everything. There's always something around the corner that you haven't, that you haven't tested before or or experienced before and I think that 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 keeps things fresh and I think exciting as well. Yeah. 
And do you also find working with clients that um, where ideas come from in, um, yeah, talking about your design pr process and the challenges at the moment with COVID-19, do you find that um, ideas for your designs have come from like a multitude of places? They could come from the client, they could come from you, they could come from, you know, um, inspirations of projects, precedents overseas. Has it been, has that been quite varied as well? Yeah, I think so. I think there's um, like there's a project we're doing, a house we're doing at the moment in um, Dramana. It's a permanent house, or you know, it's someone's permanent house, even though it's in a sort of coastal town, of Victoria. And yeah, um, the clients, really interesting clients. It's three generation of women, and they came to us. And the um, older um, client has got a degenerative condition and will probably need to be in a wheelchair in the next couple of years and so but they bought this um house site because it had a really beautiful view and it's really quite a hilly it's a really steep hill um steep site and so from that so we were looking at orientation the vista the connection to landscape it's um but then we've got the challenge of how do we try and traverse this house and make it really livable for someone in a wheelchair that can enjoy the yeah. garden um and so, anyway, it's a series of it's two pavilions with um, a sort of sleeping pavilion towards the street, and then we decided to bridge, create this bridge um, to really enhance the separation between the two pavilions, and so that there's a, that experience as you cross from one to the other through this bridge across an elevated um, across a, a garden but below, um, and and in a way it kind of re reminded me when we were working on it of uh, a, a visit that um, Mel Bright, Amy Mueller and I did a few years ago when we were in Switzerland after the Venice Biennale, we were sort of traipsing around yeah. Italy and Switzerland and went and visited a lot of Mario Botta's work and he's got that fantastic um, house on the lake in Switzerland, which yeah. is one of my favourite houses, this red kind of bridge that goes to this double-storey concrete block house. It's really austere in this beautiful Swiss, Swiss landscape. And so you kind of have, you know, and you don't want to be doing projects that then are, you know, a copy of somebody else's, but there's just these, you know, um, there's times where you go, oh, that was a really interesting spatial experience and that, and, and the, I suppose what we're doing with this new project is it's different, but it's, um, it's, it might be that experience or it might be um, one of landscape. And so the colour palette we've, you know, been looking at plants and so that they were actually the bridge will be pink with pink rubber on the floor you know so it's and because the client said that was her um favorite color and you know that she wanted a bathroom that can accommodate her physical needs but she doesn't want to look it doesn't want to look like a um and and, and you know a bathroom that that has all set sort of safety rails and so I don't know I think for us that they're they're the projects that have had physical constraints of the site and challenges but that we find the most exciting because we I really we love the um, the the I suppose opportunity to solve um, not problems you know but solve constraints yeah. and find solutions that then make a client's living arrangements you know an absolute sort of delight and you know you can still do that yeah. with lean budgets and whatever you know it's quite we're really trying to make it a kind of efficient footprint um, and. Uh, but it's really it's really interesting and, and looking at how it will work for the family now and then even fast forward in 15, 20 years' time that the lower lower level could be a self-contained apartment that could be then rented out to generate passive income for the family. And so, it's yeah, it's really interesting. And so, yeah, for us it's it's always about looking at different, broadly at different um, influences, uh, whether it be, you know, film, 
um, the amount of times I've, I've photographed, you know, I've paused a, a film and then photographed a, you know, a sort of scene because something looks, you know, really interesting. I'm like, wow, that looks great, you know. So, yeah. um, you know, or um, but for me, it's always very, it's it is always visual, you know, whether it be artwork or sculpture or a landscape. Yeah. Um, or, you know, even colours from a landscape um, or and often, you know, obviously very um, influential influential architecture. And for me, often with architecture, it often ends up being, you know, a work. Um, I love kind of brutalist, that, that sort of toughness of brutal architecture, but then exploring how we can um, bring elements of softness to very kind of ha- um, tough um, forms as well. So I suppose that's a kind yeah. of thing that we're often exploring. Right. Yeah, that was sort of, um, yeah, and leads well into another one of my questions, which was about this relationship between the inside and the outside. And um, I've read a few times that your work is, um, you know, you've obviously got very strong interiors and a lot of the time um, your interior environments are you know, they're photographed very well and they're shared. Um, but it's also equally um, the architecture, like the typically how it's typically um, known as like the walls and the structure um, and the form of the building you have really beautiful forms and they seem to to me my impression is that they work really well together you seem to have a really holistic or well-resolved relationship between the inside and the outside is that something that's evolved through your mm. experiences in practice yeah I think we um we never um there's it would be very rare for us to come up with. I can't, I'm kind of trying to think of an example whether we, if we ever have, yeah. but I don't think we have. It's, it's. We're often we've. Um, we would never look at imposing a kind of form in a landscape and then trying to back solve it for the interior. I suppose it's always yeah. about thinking, how do we want to occupy space and what's the relationship that we want to have with the landscape. Um, and orientation and and then and it's it's tricky because sometimes you're trying to work through the kind of spatial brief and how big and how much space the quantum of space that people need and that's something that again we try and interrogate a lot and really try and encourage um you know we're often trying to encourage houses and and spaces to be smaller and more efficient and more flexible and multifunctional so that because we do find our houses are fairly dense with storage and joinery and those kind of things and often we do quite a lot of built-in furniture which um I suppose adds sometimes to the the cost because you're building more into smaller spaces, but at the same time it liberates spaces from not needing to have so many pieces of furniture, and so which often can make spaces feel smaller. So it's, a, um, so I'm jumping around a bit, but I think back to no, no, yeah, great. I think back to the um, it you know it sounds a little cliche, but it was something that we we did a lot from the beginning and talked about, I suppose, is designing houses from the inside out. And I, and I also mm. reflect back to when we were doing, we first started doing houses and um, sort of 15 years ago, it's so different now, but there really seemed to be this kind of almost disdain for interiors. Um, that, mm. that was what I experienced when I was right. um, starting my practice because I was, I loved interiors and had done, I loved the, um, I suppose the, the materials and the small details and those kind of things. And maybe it was also because I was starting with smaller projects, but really thinking about those internal spaces and then seeing how that kind of um, worked externally. You can't just design a space and then see what the outcome is because it looks like a, you know, could look like a hodgepodge. You've got to then go move back outside, you know, play with the form and then come back inside again. So it's a really, it's a, um, 
you know, a constant moving kind of lens that you're looking at. But back when I sort of established the practice, I really remember people almost, architects almost looking down their nose at the idea of the interior. You know, I don't know what it was. It was almost like, oh, no, we don't do that. Or, or there just didn't seem to be that much um, interest or care that it seemed to be. Yeah. And maybe it was just the circles that, you know, that I cross paths in. But there was right. just, it was much more about the form and the architecture and the sort of sculpt, you know, the form of the building. Whereas that, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. I think there's, whether it's been, you know, who knows, like um, the uh, interest from the public in interiors now and design and that that has completely, you know, um, uh, changed and that many architects, you know, are really uh, very good at um, and very skilled at doing beautiful interiors and very crafted interiors and that that doesn't need to be relegated to someone else, you know, that that, that an architect can provide a very holistic, um, I suppose, project and building. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think for me with interiors, um, I suppose the key thing is that we we want our spaces to, you know, it's it's like how do you have that sense of um, comfort and quality of space? And I think often the comment clients when we've finished houses for them, that they're often, you know, saying, oh, we can't believe this is our house. It's so exciting because they've been through this kind of almost birthing process of, you know, talking yeah. about it for a year and then seeing it come to life on site and what often surprises me is actually how little they understood that it was going to look like. And I'm like, what? Oh, I can't right. believe that they had yeah. so much faith because you, you think that you've shown yeah. them models and you've given them 3D you know, images from time to time and they still don't truly understand what it's going to look like until they can see it in the space and then the, the, you know, yeah. the excitement that they see. But I think what I really enjoy is when they kind of say to me if, you know, weeks or months later, that it's how they feel in the space that is the most special, that they really feel comfortable and that it's a space that they love spending time in. And and I think there is that those qualities that um, how do you make spaces have that quality? And it's not the furniture that you put in them. It's, you know, they can be yeah. in deal with very basic furniture, but it's thinking about aspect and windows and making sure there is enough solid walls that you feel cosy and comfortable and um, that you don't have your back to a corridor and all, all of those kind of um qualities of and how people move yeah. through space and I think that's often something that's quite hard to articulate but I think it's mm. a real skill in making those kind of and I think going back to the theme of home that that couldn't be that's probably one of the most important I mean obviously it creates shelter but that sense of comfort and feeling really protected and and uh, at ease and relaxed is um I suppose a, a really important factor and that that doesn't relate to necessarily to furniture it's about the the quality of space yeah absolutely and it's definitely like it's your home base and mm. <laughs> at the moment home is something that's really important um so it's probably um I'd imagine that you're thinking about a whole range of things that can happen in people's homes I also have noticed that some of the homes that you've been um working on are multi-residential so um there's the Nightingale Evergreen project and other projects um, that are also multi-residential, not part of that same model. Um, could you introduce a little bit about what Nightingale is and how you've been involved in homes that create, well, I mean, a lot of homes create a sense of community through how they're designed and what they're interacting with, but Nightingale is a whole um, other amazing thing. Um, how has the process been and what is Nightingale and um, what's your involvement been with the Nightingale Evergreen project? Mm. Yeah, I think I will um, 
Jeremy, um, Jeremy McLeod, who was really, I suppose it was his brainchild, came to me yeah. back when they were looking to raise money to um, or to help co-fund the Nightingale One. And so right. um, Ben, my husband and I put um, took some money out of our home loan and I suppose a whole lot of architects and people kind of micro-invested into that project um, right. as investors, equity investors. And it was really, I suppose, the intrigue for me or the interest was that I was fairly, um, I don't know, disenfranchised about the current offering of apartments in Australia or in in Melbourne um, in particular and the kind of buildings that were being built. And after the success of the Commons, which Breathe Architecture designed, you know, they wanted to um, capitalise on that or not capitalise on it, but, Mm. but, you know, leverage that and do it again because there was so much interest in it. And yeah. And that there was this sense of community. And so that was a great um, process to be part of. It was a very much a, a silent investment, but just to watch and feel, um, you know, pleased that we could have had a small con- contribution to that. Um, and so then um, while that was all sort of ticking along, Jeremy was keen for other architects who had in, who had been part of that to do a building as well or do a Nightingale project. And so Six Degrees went and did the one that's now finished in Fairfield and Andrew Maynard. Uh, is doing one in Sydney Road, and then we were always called Nightingale Four, so we were going to be the fourth right. one to come along. And it just took us, I think, eighteen months. We were under bitter, under bitter on a lot of sites, and just couldn't quite crack uh, to find the right site. Oh, um, right. And then finally, um, the Village site, which is in Duckett Street, a couple of blocks south of Nightingale One in Brunswick, right. uh, that came about, which ended up being enough for seven. It's it's a whole collection. It was about twelve different titles. But it was um, it, it was going to suit uh, seven buildings, and so seven architects ended up coming together. Um, one, sadly, uh, which was Wawa's site, um, they ended up selling their site to Moreland City Council, so that Moreland's building now a big uh, park with a whole lot of sites have consolidated. So that was a bit of a right. sad time to lose them, but um, a yeah. great um, benefit for the community and our yeah. building about that new park. So it's us, yeah. Andrew Maynard. Kenny Nolan, Breathe Architecture, Hable, and then Architecture Architecture collaborating with Breathe on a, a, um, a community housing project. So I think the exciting thing is just having done it together. I think all practices yeah. bring different experiences. I think having someone like Hable, who are certainly um, a much bigger practice, I think 130 people in Melbourne and yeah. more experienced in delivering, you know, many, many multi-raised projects, Um and then with the other practices being, I suppose, more smaller and, and design focused. So it's been a really great um, process. And I think it's given a lot of us a, a, a much better understanding and appreciation for what developers do. It's a tough um, yeah. tough thing to do because the architecture part of it is sort of half of the work. And the right. managing director of actually being the developer is a completely different skill set and completely different um, r- responsibility, but mm-hmm. just actually understanding that whole market, I think, is really valuable. You know, the whole you know um, lending market and the debt, debt to equity ratios and the feasibilities. And we've been working with Fontic, who are project managers that we appointed, and um, it's been a huge amount of work and um, probably right. way more than we all expected because of the oh. nature of collaboration. You end up, you know, it, it's if you were doing your own building, I think the uh, it would be far more um, more straightforward because you're not having to um what's the word um co- you know co- collaborate or co- coordinate with everyone right. and get consensus it's a bit like essentially we're like a board of directors so we often have to come you know we have you know monthly board meetings trying to bring together and make collective wow. decisions yeah. but I think part of the, the the greatness 
has been that that process of collaboration and that, that we will have these public um, spaces and, and um, closing the road between the buildings to make this, um, the road will now be a sort of small, you know, pocket park. And um, so I've, I've just learnt so much in the last couple of years, it's kind of hard to fathom. And yeah. then that then gives you new appreciation but new skills to then, so then we've gone into looking at, we've, we've taken on some other um, multi-res projects and being very particular about who we wanted to work with uh, but mm. some other projects with, you know, developers. Um, yeah. But there's a kind of knowledge and a skill um, on top of the architecture that we can, um, or mindfulness in a way, of of um, of the process that I think uh, enhances our um, offering, I suppose, as architects because I think too often probably uh, in many sectors or in many many developments, the architect gets relegated and separated from the costing process and the, you know, they're they're like, oh, leave it to us, and that you know the, yeah. the developer and the project managers and then the builders and then in the procurement process sort of take over and the architect is often not included in that, in that um, even the value management um, when when projects need to be value managed. But I think architects should be part of that process because they can really help guide where to save money, where to spend money, all of those kind of things. So. So it's been really yeah. good, but I suppose that's the, the business side of it. The community yeah. side has also been the really exciting thing. I think um, the way that Nightingale projects um, are sold, so to speak, is to um, owner-occupiers. They're not investment commodities um, and that they were balloted in a very democratic kind of process, not not sold to a, a real estate agent. Um, and that just and having information sessions and having you know hundreds of people come along and listen to what the project is about and the aspirations um, the whole idea is that they're very leanly built and um, uh, and focus heavily on sustainability and um, um, I suppose being a building community within the building, but also building community within the village and then building community yeah. within the broader community. And so having this group of purchases, we've got 27 apartments in our building and that we, you know, we were having meetings fairly you know, regularly every month or so, so to kind of up, update them as to how it's going uh, there's a great sense of transparency on the process um, and that they there's this amazing amount of sort of buy-in and, and emotional connection to the process and the project because they've bought in and, and they're taken along, um, you know, through the process to understand how it works. Um, so it's been it's been great and, we're you know, we're finally under construction uh, and we'll be looking to, I think, finish uh, late 2021 next year, which will be fantastic. So I can't wait. It's been a a long wow. time coming. <laughs> yeah, it would be amazing to see to see people in there and it up and running. Um, yeah. Thinking about your experiences on all of these different amazing housing projects, um, when you think about adaption, what does that mean to you at the moment? Uh, I think it really, I suppose the situation really re- required us to, um, be agile, you know, both in our personal lives and professional lives and yeah. being able to, um, I suppose, adjust quickly or, you know, pivot, as they say. Um, but um, I think certainly it's had a much uh, more, probably much more significant impact. I mean, I think it's certainly affected every single person globally, but yeah. it's also had a huge impact on um you know, a great proportion of society who it's affected because they just can't go to work anymore. Their jobs don't exist or especially in friends in the hospitality industry and in performing arts and there's just, you know, 
there there's no work and so that is you know devastating and I suppose scary times for people in those sectors um yeah. but I think as we were kind of touching on earlier the there is um I don't know I think there's I feel like in a way there needed to be uh, a form of disruption I think there's you know even after Australia's summer with the you know devastating bushfires then all the um the kind of um, environmental protests that were happening last year and it kind of felt like um, no matter how much we and, you know, people spoke about it, it, it was kind of falling on deaf ears. And so I think it's it's almost maybe this kind of awakening that governments and society really needs to listen to. It's almost this disruptor that has kind of shaken everybody and, you know, um, where it and I don't know maybe that's something that the you know that we needed um a to start taking not taking things for granted you know our personal freedoms and um our the availability of groceries and um uh and even you know that we all have take for granted that we have jobs you know and it's that kind of thing that our grandparents who lived through world wars and you know severe drought and all of those kind of things that they had all experienced that and I think we've we've certainly become this, you know, in general, a consumerist kind of um, society in our uh, way that we live. And I think I'm sort of hopeful that this can be taken on as a a kind of um, very challenging time, but hopefully looking at it optimistically for it to actually make people think differently. And and also, I, I also think that, you know, I know I certainly have lived or have, you know, the last couple of years have been incredibly busy, you know, you sort of, on yeah. this, you know, uh, rat, you know, wheel running around and, um, yeah. you know, and that's fine. You know, I mean, I sort of like living a fast paced life and, um, yeah. you know, busy practice and lucky to be busy and love what I do. And then young kids and a family and, you know, love catching up with friends and there's lots of functions and things yeah. during the week, but at the same time, it's sort of, you know, it's, um, there's something really quite liberating about the the last um, the slowness that the last six to seven or you know so weeks have had, and that um, kind of enforced reflection, I think, and just actually, um, I don't know, I, I've never had so much time time with my kids, and you know because I sort of had kids and went straight back to work, you know, when they were babies, and so. Um, and you know, my mum's always like, "Oh, they're going to grow so fast. You're going to miss out on it." And it's you know, like they're nine, <laughs> they're nine and twelve now. And so, in a way, I'm also blessed that that they, um, I don't have toddlers and babies trying to keep yeah. practicing and working. You know, I think some oh, friends are doing it really tough hard. with little kids. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think we've just got to. I think. I think. I think this is also going to, you know, have a long economic impact, and it's going to yeah. be tough for a lot of people. And so, I, I don't underestimate that at all. And it's not that you can say, oh, this has been a good thing and we've needed it. It's been, you know, it's devastating for many people. But I do kind of think that sometimes you need these kind of disruptors for, for us to have a bit of a wake-up call. Um, yeah, and absolutely. And I think it's health, It's good to see how people can ad- adapt and adjust. And in a way, even in the workplace, I think there's always this, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of, I suppose, employers that, you, you know, you hear anecdotally that, um, but, you know, there wasn't often a lot of flexibility with people's working arrangements. And I think that this environment has shown probably employers and managers and executives that 
people can do a really good job working from home and that actually having work flexibility and um, certainly even, you know, um, having a lot of more meetings on Zoom and maybe that helps people, um, can you know, encourages people to travel less um, for meetings and um, really only travel for essential kind of requirements. I know yeah. I'm on the, at the board at the Institute of Architects and we've been meeting regularly and we, we last year had actually started to reduce our face-to-face board meetings for cost and environmental reasons to, to minimise, right. um, you know, carbon emissions from, you know, flying to Sydney or people flying to Melbourne yeah. to meet. Um, and because, you know, there's certain times that you do need to meet face-to-face, but with Zoom or whichever platform people use, it's so effective that you just don't need to do it. And then you then you also save that you don't have the time of going to the airport, flying to a place, sitting in a meeting room and then flying back again, you know. So I think hopefully there are a lot of um, lessons that, that organisations and people can take from this experience that will actually be uh, positive outcomes. I think it's been very interesting to see how um, it's almost like there's a lot of things going on at the moment, like in one sense, we're all using technology a lot, but we were using technology a lot before, but now it seems like, well, you know, the way my friends are using it, it's people are perhaps being a bit more mindful about things and it, it has slowed down the pace. So, you know, for example, you might be on a chat, but now it might be a planned chat. So you can sort of work out where you're going to be and, you know, we're sort of more prepared for the fact that we're living in that way so we can make it work. It sort of feels like COVID has, um, yeah, been a bit of a push to get people to use technology but maybe to use technology in a way that's um, better supportive of our lives. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I'm really interested to see how that all um, sort of pans out. Mm. Um, I mean, you're you're such an... um, you're such a great person to interview because there's so many things that I could ask you about. I mean, there's obviously the, um, you were the president of the Australian Institute of Architects last year, which um, I'm sure entailed a lot of things. You're also, um, you know, leading female architects. So there's a whole, a whole many, many questions I could ask um, there. Where do you, what do you think are some of the things that are going to be important in architecture as we trans? Um, as we sort of leave this COVID-19 situation or what are the things that you're focusing on in your own practice that maybe you were already focusing on? Like what does the future sort of look like for Claire Cousins Architects? Um, I think the, um, I mean, I certainly think from my experience and um, work with Nightingale Housing and then yeah. also the the um role with the institute which is national yeah. president sort of a three-year it's it's a one-year position but you do a year before and a year after as you know right. uh, and, you know elect president elect and an immediate pass so it does go for kind of three years but it it um so it it really opened my eyes to um I suppose it really cemented I was always very interested in um always interested in looking broadly at the profession and and what architects do beyond um I suppose their own practice but it it, um, I suppose, honed that focus because I was looking much more, you know, holistically at the profession. Um, it's very easy when you, I think you work in your own practice. It's, it can be quite all-consuming and it's very easy to get very focused and not nasal gaze, gaze but, but you know, it's, right. it's a consuming profession. Yeah. And so it's very easy to be constantly 
um, working for your clients and looking after your team and, you know, and you get, you know, it's whereas I found by taking on this uh, role, it, you know, it, it, it was a huge amount of time that I was, I, I found I learned so much and just you look so much more broadly and you're, um, you know, you're talking to politicians and you're talking to policymakers and other associated yeah. allied industries and so, and, you know, looking at all the challenges that we have with affordable housing and all those things. So it's so broad. So it really did, I think, over the last three or four years has kind of cemented for me the importance of every project that I take on. You know, while while we love doing houses and we'll continue to do one-off houses for clients, but um, that there needs to be a, um, a kind of really, uh, I suppose, social focus ideally on the, the other many of the projects that we take on um, and I think just because um, I don't know I think it's I th- maybe it's also because then we can feel like we can bring good design to more people and that um, and design doesn't have to you know good design doesn't have to have a, um, a big uh, price tag attached to it um, and I think that um, the other thing is that um, I suppose but letting people know that architects don't just design buildings. I said I think that architects really we're really good problem solvers and design thinkers and that that can be used for good in so many ways. Um, and I suppose the presidency's you know open doors where I've been invited to sit on um, I suppose you know government panels now and things that can be um, that are having any impact on I suppose city making, um, policies and decisions and those kind of things. And so it's it's starting to and, – and I think given coming out of COVID, that kind of design thinking and forward thinking and strategic thinking is so important in – going to be so important in the recovery and I suppose stimulus to, to stimulate the economy um, for jobs and um, I suppose, you know, prosperity and – we need projects because there is, you know, probably going to be um, a decline in multi-residential and so, you know, there's certainly a lot of advocacy happening at the moment to try and have stimulus in affordable and social housing. So how can the government do that? And so it's how can architects get involved in that and and help, um, uh, I, yeah, because I think there's always been, I think the challenge and the challenge that the profession still faces is that, I don't feel uh, the profession or architects are taken seriously enough at not like the legal or the medical profession. So, you know, you'll watch the news and the AMA or the Law Society or whoever they are, you know, they're often asked for their opinion on things and what should we do. And there's, and it, and the, you know, the, the, there's so many times that we put out press releases and there's, there's so much good content. And there's so many people who know a lot about it, but there's, there tends to be this, uh, or tends to you know, know a lot about you know, whether anything to do with the built environment, you know, but they'll they'll listen to other organisations before they listen to architects. And ironically, um, some of the other organisations really are lobbying for the for the um, for the sake of their members, which really often only leads to more work and um, and profitability of of some industries. Whereas with architecture and architects, there is an altruistic side to what architects are talking about. We do have um, very key, keen interest in the long-term benefits to yeah. the built environment and to um, environmental policies and the sustainability of the way we live, and um, and that's because architecture is a profession. So we have a we, we sign up to a code of ethics, and um, like 
a doctor does, you know, like a lawyer yeah. does, whereas, you know, builders don't, developers don't, you know, um, all the yeah. those other um, parts of the, um, the construction industry. And so it's not to say that we're right and they're wrong, but I think we need – we need to have a stronger voice and I think it doesn't actually – we, we don't. We shouldn't sit back and wait for others to do that and I think that's in a way what someone like Jeremy McLeod from Breathe Architecture has done with Nightingale because he's a visionary. He, he just decided that he was going to do this thing and he's done it and he's doing it and he's influencing in many different ways because he just decided he wanted to be a disruptor and change and, and, and offer a, a new way of um, – a new a new housing offering in the Melbourne market, yeah. you know, and that that just didn't happen. And so it, it kind of shows the power that one person can have, and that if we had more people that that do um, want to be um, disruptive for positive, I think that that's really mm-hmm. exciting. And I think um, you know one person can make a big difference. And and yeah. so yeah, so I think I think and and I think the other last thing is that architects really there's I think often we think about traditional practicing architects there's a lot of other ways that um people who may have trained as an architect work and whether it be in you know there are some great people that work in um policy making like Shelley Penn you know is fantastic yeah. who's an ex-national president or um right. yeah. you know or they work in urban design or you know uh, it's just it, it it doesn't there's all the people that work in academia you know or research mm. and those kind of things so it's it's I don't know I think it's they're all going to be um, – I think the, the, the exciting thing is that I think hopefully there will be an appetite to, to listen to what's possible um, because right. the way it feels like there's a – hopefully there will be an awakening and we need to kind of almost not just go back to how we always did things, that there's an opportunity to do things in a new way. Um, wow. So. That's great. <laughs> very, very powerful things to hear and I'm really um, grateful that I can share them so Thank you for your thoughts. Um, to sort of finish up, so this podcast is obviously called The Doyen Interviews. Um, I started it wanting to hear more from women um, and to hear about uh, different stories and how people got to where they are cause, just because I find it very interesting. Um, but I've found with a lot of my interviews, especially as I've gone on, that the topic of being a woman hasn't come up just because we've been talking about so many other things. Um, so I do think it's great that, it is just women because even without talking about female issues or what are sometimes seen as female issues, um, it does sort of give a really strong message. So that's really good. Um, so just to sort of wrap up the interview, this advice that you're giving, um, is there anything in that in terms of advocacy and disruption that um, are there any comments that you would make to um, either women in the profession or um just to people in the profession, but from a female perspective, um, is there any advice that you would give to people or that you would look back on your career? Are there any comments that you'd want to share? I think, I think um, for me, in a way, uh, I think the friendships that I've made in the profession are so yeah. strong and that's with men and women. You know, it's just with it's yeah. architects and colleagues. But I think... yeah. When you when you have and I I still remember um, the first uh, institute conference I went to which was I don't know maybe twelve years ago or something I um, I still remember <laughs> very funny I think it was um, I had gone to um, I think it must have been in Melbourne but I remember going I didn't know anyone 
and I'd actually had a, I just had my um, a baby, I don't know, I, I was still breastfeeding. And so it must have been five months later. And so I'd had my hand breast pump that I took in my handbag and I literally didn't know a soul. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just go and sit in the toilet cubicle and express <laughs> express milk on the on the brakes because A, I was, a, you know, just didn't know a soul and B, you know, I was wow. kind of, yeah, I had to do it anyway because I had to relieve, you know, the baby was at home, it was Saturday or something. But and then, I, and then I thought, oh, it's so depressing. I don't know anyone, you know, but I was there because I wanted to, you know, be immersed for two days in architecture. And then now to feeling like I, you know, have just made some of my closest friends uh, architects in the profession. And I think the reason, you know, and the Institute did that. The, the Institute was the, the conduit for me to meet these people, you know, and the, the, the kind of the small practice forums and the committees that I've joined and, there are, you know, groups where, you know, there's, I go to a medium practice forum, there's you know, probably 20 of us different practitioners that come together every couple of months and really just talk about the business of architecture and support one another and that we know we can pick up the phone and say I'm having this, you know, issue or I'm going for this, you know, we're tendering on this job, you know, have you done that kind of work before or whatever. And I, and I think to go back to your question, building that network of, of friends and colleagues is so I suppose, empowering because you feel so supported. And I think that that, that when you go back to the idea of, of advocating or, um, or wanting to push um, the boundaries or, um, you know, be a leader for something, when you feel that you've got a whole lot of colleagues and friends that have your back, you feel so much more powerful to do that. And I think that that's yeah. a really great thing to do and, and I just, I think it's, it would apply to any, you know, any sector that you're in. But I think, you know, architecture is a really hard, I mean, we talk about it like in the office all the time. It's a tough, it's a tough industry. It's yeah. a hard, um, and, and we mainly do residential, you know, we don't even do a lot of commercial, yeah. which is the, the, the much, you know, more, I suppose, can be much more combative um, environment for architects to work in. And so I think, you know, we've got to stand up for, not putting up with, you know, poor working conditions or combative environments with contractors on site or, you know, um, it's so I think within whatever it is, whether it's advocating for good sustainability policies or environmental policies or, um, you know, gender equality or, um, I don't know, uh, you know, a stimulus package for the economy, um, it's just it's about banding together and, and you know, um, I don't know, bouncing ideas off colleagues and friends and and sometimes it is easier to do it with a group of you rather than just you on your own. But I think there is a great um, community of architects out there and we're very lucky to have that. And um, and I think even things like social media platforms really even help have helped bond um, interstate architects. There's a, I felt that mm. that has become much more connected, even if they're people we don't speak to all the time. You feel that sense of support and connection. It's a very positive, um, supportive environment of um and when ironically, often we're all competing against each other for the same clients and jobs. You know, a lot of my often I'll hear that I'm up against, you know, two or three of my, you know, close architect friends and I'm thrilled that when one yeah. of them gets it or if I get it or whatever. Like there is there it really yeah. is a very great collegiate um um uh there's you know, there's no room for anything but that really. But I think that that's very empowering. Yeah. Oh, I find that really, really interesting to hear. Um, I have an interview planned in about a month with um, Melissa Bright, Mel Bright. Well, I met, we were on at uni on the first day of school, first day of uni together, we went up in the lift together. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've, um, we're very, very dear friends, but um, we did start uni on the first day and um, 
uh, it was very funny. So it's been a long history. And we'll have a great conversation with her. She's great. So I look forward to hearing hearing it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Claire, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really, really excited to share this interview. I think um, a lot of people will really enjoy listening to it. Um, and, yeah, congratulations on your projects and everything you've achieved. And, yeah, I can't wait to see um, what you get up to next. Thanks so much for having me, Bridget. I really enjoyed our chat. Thanks. Thanks, Claire, for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation, especially during the lockdown period. Next up, we'll be chatting to Marina Carroll. I hope you can join us. With the projects, I mean, I work a lot, um, you know, in an area called strategy. So often it's that very, very front end before, you know, a brief even it exists. Um, and that's actually something I really enjoy is kind of creating um, a framework or um, even just a vision for something that doesn't even exist yet.